Beloved, if you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, as we continue our series uh, in this uh, wonderful, action-packed gospel. Uh, This evening, we will be in verses 18 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Mark, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. As far as the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? O oh Lord, we pray that the meditation that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in this wonderful section tonight, in which precedes it, a section on food. Lots of food, lots of feasting in these sections. And uh, isn't it true that uh, Christian weddings um, are, I have to say, almost always a joyful occasion. <laughs> Christian weddings are, I wanted to say always, but that's not always the case. Um, I think it's been the case for every one that I have uh, been a part of and had the privilege of officiating. Um, there was one occasion where the father came up to me uh, before the service, this is many, many years ago, um, and said, uh, I'm just not convinced that he's the one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, awkward. Uh, this was, this was um, right before the service. And, and I said, well, it's a little late now, my friend. Um, uh, she's convinced. Everyone seems convinced. Uh, you're going to have to get on board uh, with this. And, uh, and he did, and things have turned out uh, just, just great. Praise the Lord. Uh, but Christian weddings are, are a joyful occasion, and it would seem quite odd if there were those at a, a, a wedding or at a, a wedding reception that were walking around looking glum and sad and downcast. Uh, in fact, imagine uh, all of the guests walking around, the music's playing, the food is out, and people are just walking around looking uh, sad and discouraged, and it, the whole thing would be a complete disaster if that were the case. That's ridiculous, right? Well, this section, uh, which comes uh, on the heels of the previous one that we looked at uh, last time together, uh, two weeks ago, uh, is on the heels of this text about Jesus dining with sinners. He is with the tax collectors, he's with the sinners, and he says at the end of that section, in verse 17, those who are well, Jesus says, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. And so here Jesus is, is eating with these folks. And so uh, then we notice in verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So, so you know, scholars have tried to make the connection uh, here. They say, do we know for sure that these people are around when Jesus is feasting with the tax collectors and the sinners? And he's eating all his food. And his disciples are eating. Um, we don't know for sure, but I think there's decent uh, evidence here that we have a movement from, from this uh, meal taking place with the sinners and the tax collectors to uh, John's disciples and Pharisees who were fasting, asking this question, uh, this important question, why is it that the disciples of John uh, fast uh, and the, Pharise- the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So, um, again, we don't know the exact context of this, whether it was on the heels of or in the midst of this feast that Jesus was having with the disciples. I tend to think that, uh, after my study, that it was. Um, uh, what's important here is not necessarily the location of the question or the identity of the questioners, but the question itself. You see, fasting was a very important aspect of the Pharisaical tradition and a core discipline of the ascetic lifestyle of the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was an ascetic. Um, he didn't shop at Brooks Brothers. Okay, uh, he wore camel's hair. Uh, he ate locusts. He lived out in the desert. He lived as an ascetic. So, these questioners they wanted to make the point loud and clear. In other words, they were saying, Jesus, if you are such a strong spiritual leader, why is it that you do not follow the highly devoted regimen of the Pharisees and the disciples of John? I mean, look at you all. While the Pharisees and the disciples of John fast and pray, you eat heartily with these sinners and tax collectors. The question, of course, was loaded with criticism attempting to discredit Jesus' ministry in front of others. Now, I think it's important that we pause for just a minute and think about fasting in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Now, you remember that around the law of Moses, the Pharisees and scribes of the Pharisees had developed a tradition of, of extra laws, as it were, to help people to obey the law of God. So around the law were all these other laws that were made, rules, regulations, stipulations by the Pharisees. Um, And so that's why we talk a lot about, you know, Pharisaism in our own day. People are acting like Pharisees when they are adding to the word of God, um, uh, adding to God's law, having the 11th, 12th, and 13th commandment, and not just the 10 commandments, as it were. The only fast that is suggested by the Mosaic law, not even prescribed as far as I can tell, was on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. The one day in which the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of spotless animals as an atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. Of course, these sacrifices were not sufficient to atone or save. These temple sacrifices as the old Testament administration of God's grace, they pointed to Christ. They were in joyful anticipation of the seed of promise. They pointed to the one and only sufficient sacrifice for sins, namely Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. 
Now, beside the fast on the Day of Atonement, there were other fasts that had become traditional at the close of the prophetic period, as some call it, the post-exilic period. We learn in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8 and verse 19, that there were, there were four yearly fasts that were observed by the Jews. Now, there were other fasts that took place. There was a fast of, of a week. There was a fast of 40 days. There were different fasts that you see, but they weren't sort of prescribed by the law. They were things that happened as people were seeking to humble themselves before God uh, to, uh, uh, to abstain from food in order to be able to focus on the Lord and to pray, to replace mealtime with prayer time, uh, as it were. And it's something that we still encourage today. It's something that we still encourage today. But the Pharisees uh, had a custom of fasting two days out of the week. Luke chapter 18 and verse 12 tells us this. Uh, we learn from rabbinic tradition that they fasted every Monday and Thursday. Uh, some of those, I think one of the Wesleys, if not both the Wesley brothers, uh, chose uh, one day out of the week to fast just as a matter of discipline and so forth. These are things that Christians can choose to do, but they are not things that they can then require of others, right? Uh, some of you may have some disciplined exercise regimen because you want to treat your body like a temple of the Holy Spirit, but you can't then start demanding that everybody else be on the same exercise regimen that you're on, right? Um, some of you are like, really? I can't do that? Uh, no, you can't do that. Um, and so the Pharisees, in a sense, with their spiritual regimen, were seeking to place that burden onto others and, of course, with no gospel emphasis at all. Now, these disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John, uh, they were likely fasting and mourning over their own sin. There's uh, some thought. People don't know exactly the timeline of this, but John the Baptist could have been dead at this point, and the disciples of John, John could have been fasting and mourning over his death. That could have been a part of this uh, as well. So, here again, we see legalism raising its ugly head. And so to summarize this section, while the Pharisees and disciples of John were abstaining from food and mourning over sin and the judgments of God uh, and perhaps mourning over the loss of John the Baptist, Jesus and his disciples were feasting and enjoying themselves. Uh, Jesus could have easily defended their actions by simply asking where in the law does it state that they are required to fast. But instead... Jesus answers the question in a way we wouldn't expect. And this brings us to verses 19 and 20. Look there with me. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And so here Jesus' answer does not dismiss fasting as something that God's people do from time to time or perhaps even on a regular basis. He makes clear, however, that the time to fast is not now while the bridegroom is with them. Christ answers by way of analogy, and that is an analogy of a wedding celebration. Over and over again, 
we see the analogy of the relationship between God and his people or between Christ and his church with that of a bride and a bridegroom or a husband and a wife. The Lord graciously gives us these kinds of analogies, metaphors, because they are things that we can understand. A man and a wife who love one another, who are devoted to one another, who are jealous in all the right ways over one another. That relationship is so powerful, so strong. It's instituted of God at creation. It helps us to understand how God could be jealous over us for turning our eyes away to other spiritual lovers, as it were, to idols. So we get that. And so God says, I am your husband. Christ says, I am your husband. You are my wife. You are my bride. The church is the bride of Christ. In Isaiah 54, 6, it says, For the Lord has called you like a wife. John the Baptist, speaking of Christ's coming, says in John 3, 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Of course, in Ephesians 5, we have that wonderful text uh, that uh, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ, what? Loved the church. And that rest of the, uh, the section there is, is an analogy uh, between a husband and a wife and Christ and the church. And so what Christ brings up here is going to be familiar to the ears of those who know their Old Testaments. What's interesting in this text, however, is that while Christ likens himself to a bridegroom, he compares his disciples to wedding guests, or more precisely, as the Greek text renders, sons of the bride chamber, which in our day we would call groomsmen. Groomsmen. Jesus asks in verse 19, if the groomsmen, as it were, now in our uh, translation it says uh, guests, I think more definitively it speaks of groomsmen here, ought to fast while the bridegroom is with them. Could you imagine? How awful would that be? Uh, now, Marla and I had a pretty good-sized wedding uh, 25 and a half years ago, and we had lots of groomsmen and lots of bridesmaids, and, and uh, it was such a, joyful, such a joyful occasion. And I just think of how wonderful it was to have all of these uh, godly men as my groomsmen and the thought of them fasting on that day is outrageous. No, no, thank you. I'm not, I'm not going to do I'm going to fast today. Hair disheveled, looking glum, sad. No, no, I'm, I'm fasting today. You're, you're doing what? And then the next groom, groomsman comes up. Yeah, I'm, I'm fasting too. Seriously? Actually, we all are. We're all fasting today. So no, no thank you. Uh, I, I don't want any of this amazing food. Um, I'm not going to join in the celebration. Today I'm going to, to fast. We are going to fast together. Uh, it, it's outrageous. And, um, and this is how we ought to think about the response that, that, that Christ gives uh, here. Jesus asks in verse 19, if the groomsmen ought to fast while the bridegroom is with them. And the answer is obvious. This is supposed to be a joyful occasion, not a time for, fat, there, for fasting and mourning. There are times for fasting and for mourning, but a wedding is not it. When the groomsman is there, it is not it. When the bridegroom is there, 
it is not the time. It would be highly inappropriate for Jesus' disciples to fast and mourn when the Son of God himself, Emmanuel, is with them, preaching the good news of salvation, performing miracles, inaugurating the kingdom of God, proclaiming the glad tidings of salvation. This is not a time to mourn. This is a time to rejoice. If there was ever a time for fasting, this was not it. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who was sent from his Father in heaven to redeem his people from the bondage of sin and death, was standing in their midst. It was not a time for fasting, but a time of rejoicing and feasting. Again, just as it would be ridiculous for groomsmen or wedding guests to mourn and fast before the bridegroom, so it would be ridiculous for the disciples to mourn and fast while salvation incarnate stood in their midst. But Christ in verse 20, in an almost stark change of tone, makes reference to a time when it actually would be appropriate to fast. Mark 2.20, look there with me. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This is a veiled reference to Christ's crucifixion and death. When he would be betrayed, taken into custody by the Roman authorities, and condemned by the religious leaders. Many believe that this is indeed an early prediction of Christ's death, and it was an allusion to Isaiah 53, verse 8, found within one of the most lucidly prophetic chapters concerning the Messiah in all of Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The point is that when Jesus is taken away from them, the disciples will fast and mourn, but not while the Savior is with them in this day. Up until this point, we've considered the question about fasting and Jesus' answer to the question. Now we come to these two parables that illustrate Christ's answer. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I want to say this. Uh, I do believe that here... Christ carries on his analogy, in a sense, of the wedding celebration because when people go to weddings, they wear new clothes a lot of times, right? They want to wear something new. They want to wear something nice. Uh, and so you have the garment being spoken of. And what do people do at weddings? They drink wine at weddings. Um, and so we have illustrations here that connect us to this same analogy of the wedding feast, as it were, the wedding celebration. And so we have the unshrunk cloth. If a patch of new cloth 
is placed upon an old garment and subsequently the garment is washed, the new patch will shrink and tear away from the garment, perhaps making it worse than to begin with. And then to reinforce this same point, Christ says that it would be absurd to put new wine into an old wineskin. Wineskins were made out of goatskin. Over time, these skins became brittle and were unfit to store new fermenting wine. If new wine was placed into the old skins, the skins would break and you would lose all of that wine you worked so hard to make. So what's the point? What's the point here? The point is this, and this is really uh, the central message of this text. The legalism and all of the man-made traditions of the Pharisees, such as fasting, does not mesh does not mix with the gospel of grace and forgiveness that is offered to sinners by Christ. The inauguration of the kingdom of God and the new covenant cannot be brought together with the legalistic traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. And there are other ways we could apply this as well. But these things do not go together. There are certain things that do not go together when we talk about the gospel. When we talk about the Christian life. The new cloth and the new wine represent the new teaching of Jesus, as it were. Represents the gospel of free grace. The new way of life and living in him. The old garment and the old wineskins represent the old religious structures and traditions created by the Pharisees. And they are unable to accommodate the power and freedom found in the gospel. They do not accommodate the power and the freedom that are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and experienced. In fact, the gospel will only tear these legalistic traditions apart and burst them open. In the legalistic, man-made approach to religion, there is only death and bondage and condemnation. But in Christ and his gospel, there is life, there is freedom, and there is the forgiveness of sins. And so we don't want to be found trying to patch on the gospel onto a former way of life that is opposed to the gospel or antithetical to the gospel. And dear ones, legalism or finding any other way to make oneself right with God is a, 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 a matter of life and a matter of, of, of faith that does not mesh with the gospel at all. They are totally antithetical. And we don't want to pour... Uh, the new wine of the gospel into the old wineskin of the way we used to think and the way we used to live and all those things that are antithetical to the gospel. That is his point. And so let us be careful, dear ones, as we consider a couple of thoughts regarding application. Let us be careful not to place the new wine of the gospel into the old wineskins of our lives or to, to put the new patch of the gospel onto an old garment. It doesn't work. 
It never works. It's one reason why we, out of a hundred reasons, why we, we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ must stay central in the life and ministry and worship of the church and in our homes when we do family worship and in our private worship when we spend time with God. The gospel must be that which is at the very center of our piety and on the, the tip of our minds and, and the focus of our hearts because it is when we move away from the gospel that we move away from Christ and we begin to try to patch the gospel onto the old ways, onto the, the legalisms, or as I will mention in a moment, onto the worldliness. And we try to mix things together that are not meant to mix. Do we want gospel power in our lives, in our families, in our church? Then we must not mix the gospel with legalism, uh, with worldliness, or with other Things that do not mix with the gospel. The gospel is lost if we think that God will accept us based upon our own righteousness or our own moral strivings or way of life. You see, if you think that you are right with God through your own works, then you have misunderstood the gospel completely. Because the gospel, I heard again recently, uh, someone said that um, we are supposed to be the gospel to our community. Excuse me? That's, that's not good news. That's bad news. Okay, no offense, but you're not the gospel. And I'm not the gospel. Now, are we to be adorned with the fruit of the gospel in our families and in our community? Yes, Are we the gospel? Are we the good news? No. The good news is a declaration. It's an announcement that Christ died for sinners. And in him we have grace and the forgiveness of sins and imputed righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's to be preached. It's to be heard. And it's to be believed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But we are, of course, to be uh, adorned with the fruit of the gospel. But we are not the gospel, and what we do is not the gospel. It's what Christ has done that's the gospel. He is the good news, and we rejoice in him. So we don't want to patch the gospel onto our own good works, onto legalisms and and the way we compare ourselves to others and all these ways that Christians end up being miserable because they're trying to put together the gospel with something that it doesn't go with. There's only one gospel, and that gospel says that we can do nothing to save ourselves or to make ourselves just before God. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That is, those who are counted as righteous shall live by faith. Faith in whom? Faith in Christ. But what about worldliness? That's another thing that we can put a, the, the, the patch of the gospel, a new patch on uh, the old garment or the, uh, the new wine into an old um, uh, container. Worldliness. It is probably, I would say, not legalistic wineskins that plague our modern context as much as the wineskins of 
worldliness. Many today gladly receive Christ as Savior and refuse to leave their lives of worldliness, attempting to place the new wine of a life in Christ into wineskins of worldliness and sin, and that doesn't work. That's another thing. We, we, we cannot pour the new wine of the gospel into the old wineskins of a worldly and a sinful life. By God's grace, we must repent of our sin and turn from our sin so that the wineskin becomes a new life in Christ, a new creation, which is what the Lord does by his grace, isn't it? Those who truly possess new life in Christ are a new creation and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One cannot be the same time a follower of Christ and a lover of the world and all of her, her allurements. Of course, of course, as those who still have sinful tendencies and remaining indwelling sin as Christian believers, we, we must repent and confess our sins and keep short accounts and die to sin and live to Christ. And this is the work of sanctification, of course, yes. But the point is, we don't want to try to patch something on to something old and that is clearly antithetical to the gospel, whether it's legalism or whether it's licentiousness in a worldly life. And so let us praise God this evening for the words of Christ and for this answer that he gives to these disciples of John and these disciples of the Pharisees asking why his disciples do not fast. Jesus tells them, the guests will not fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And it's then that they will fast. When Christ is betrayed by Judas, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken before religious and civil leaders, where he is beaten with rods and mocked and scorned and spit upon and finally led to the cross, carrying the cross beam until he could carry it no more and had to be assisted by Simon of Cyrene. Imagine that, the maker of the world, of the universe, unable to carry the beam, as it were, as the God-man, broken, humbled, weak, and finally nailed to the cross. With your, sh your shame and my shame and your sin and my sin on him. And, and he would be taken away. But for the time, Jesus says, no, they will not fast. That will come later. And so Jesus makes it very clear that this new kingdom that he has inaugurated, this gospel that he is proclaiming is not to be patched on to some old pharisaical traditions and ways. No, this is a, a new kingdom he's bringing, a glorious gospel in fulfillment of all the promises made in the old covenant. And in this we can rejoice. In this we can rejoice this evening as we come to the Lord's table, 
a feast that Christ himself instituted for the spiritual blessing and nourishment of his people. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for this brief time in your word to be encouraged and to remember not to patch the new cloth on the old cloth or the new wine and the old wineskin. We pray we'd be those that, by your grace, boast in and rejoice in the work of Christ alone for our salvation. And even now, Lord, as we sing and come to your table, would you nourish and comfort us and encourage us as we, as pioneers and sojourners, going from this wilderness to the promised land, need your grace, need your forgiveness, need your power and strength to stand firm in this present evil age. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, I invite you to please stand as we sing together. Join.